Kei ngā tanifa, he kuroa o te motura rau mai ki te hui. Ko mihi ngā rangi tēnei, e mihi atu nei ki a koutou katoa. Welcome to the hui, Māori current affairs for all New Zealanders. E taroa ke nei. Mā te kainga tahi, ora kainga rua. The director came out and he said, we need to find beds for 400 people tonight. Go and work your magic. After more than two and a half years of protecting Aotearoa from COVID, we're there as MIQ finally closes its doors. I was a part of it from day one, and I'm going to be here to turn the lights out uh, as well, which is pretty cool. Then we meet the wahine creating her own line of rongoa Māori soaps. This is one of the strongest rongoa used by Aotearoa. So when we take the bark, the bark is yellow. And we speak to Associate Minister of Health, Aisha Varel. It's been a key strategy in our battle against the coronavirus, but now MIQ has finally closed its doors. Managed isolation quarantine began operation in April 2020, 41 days after Aotearoa recorded its first COVID case. The system is responsible for thwarting over 4,500 cases of the virus at the border, buying precious time to protect our communities. Now, one of its first kaimahi reflects back on the enormous challenges of creating and managing an operation never seen before in Aotearoa. Kea Rawani Pereira, Tene Pūrungo. Jet Park Hotel in South Auckland was ground zero for managed isolation. The very first MIQ in the country to open in April 2020, and now the last hotel to finally close its doors. From the start, this was dedicated as a quarantine facility, so it took all of the positive cases, both from the border and then from other facilities, as people tested positive. Firstly, thank you all for coming this morning. Today, Jet Park is being returned to the hospitality sector with an early morning whakanoa. Rima Erueti helped set up MIQ from the beginning of the pandemic and she's here to witness the removing of the tapu. I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart, the amount of aloha, the resilience, the laughs that we all had during that time. As one of the few staff left who've been working behind the scenes of the quarantine system, Rema has earned the gratitude of Aotearoa. She began working for the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Enterprise in 2009, long before the pandemic. So it was really about trying to encourage more youth, Māori, Pacifica and women um, to consider the trades as a viable career option. Then in March 2020, Alert Level 4 lockdown shut down construction and Rema was redeployed into a unique role, never before seen in this country. Every New Zealander boarding a flight to come home will be quarantined for at least 14 days. To be absolutely clear, no one goes home. Everyone goes into a managed facility. It was meant to be for three weeks, so I came in as part of the temporary accommodation service. So it was about being able to find people somewhere to go to, to at least wait it out till they could return home. 
Rema was thrust into the hot seat overnight and the demands of this new job were huge. The director came out and he said, we need to find beds for 400 people tonight. Go and work your magic. The notice was short and from hour to hour, they had no idea how many people to expect on arrival. We were thankful for the long distance flights because we knew when the doors shut, we had approximately nine hours to find beds for 260 people. The Australia flights really put a lot of pressure on us because three hours and at that time it was jam them where we could go. So it's like you're ringing the hotels, how many rooms have you got? What's the configuration? Okay, we've got 40 here, 30 here. Okay, I need you, two buses, to go here. I need this bus to go here. Can you describe seeing those first busloads of people arriving? You know, you have people, particularly whānau from Australia, they just literally packed up everything and came home. They didn't know where they were going to, and so we'd chat to them and they're like, I don't have a bank account, I don't, I don't have an inland revenue number, I can't apply for this. My kids has got two nappies left. Then it was the realisation that they're in a hotel room, potentially whānau's as big as six, seven, eight, and they don't know where they're going next. Mental health took a, took a big toll, but also the diversity of people that we had coming in. And so it was clear quite early on that we needed to reach into our community for support. We needed to provide the manaakitanga. The need to manaaki and cater to a variety of different needs and requests on a daily basis was relentless and went on month after month. We'd find out from the airport an unplanned flight is coming in from here or from here and it's like shucks, we need to readjust. We need to just double check and have another look. So they were, they were some really long days. We were generally in here by 7am and then generally it was myself and the transport logistics team. We would aim to be out of here by 9, 10pm. We weren't leaving until the last bus got to the hotel and the hotel confirmed that they had enough rooms. We wanted to make sure because otherwise we needed to find somewhere else. The security on the outside hasn't fixed things on the inside here, where we've got mix-up of passengers coming in. It just seems such a shambles here. Not only was their job high pressure, the media scrutiny was just as intense. Two COVID-positive sisters who are able to leave managed isolation without being tested. And obviously that is hopeless and unacceptable. And Rema says the constant stream of criticism posed one of the biggest challenges as they tried to do the best they could in an ever-changing environment. Kiwis around the world have been waiting and waiting for spots to open up. Quarantine accommodation was in high demand and that created chaos. At that stage, we were trying to look after the whānau in our community, but that did mean that there were less beds available for the whānau wanting to return from overseas. And so the criticism from both sides uh, was really challenging. The hotels were full. They didn't always have the ability to have as much exercise or to get outside for some fresh air as, as you wanted. And it was our staff that bore the brunt of that frustration from the returnees. We've had people pass away. Um, we've had people that have come home extremely distressed. Um, 
because their whānau are ill. They've come home for tangi, um, or they've come in for medical reasons, the family's been separated, and they're in hospital, and the other half of the whānau are left in MIQ, and they've passed, and they've been on their own. And unfortunately, that wasn't just one day. It happened quite regularly. Everyone kind of understood our main aim is keeping our whānau safe. We would do whatever it took in, to, in order to be able to make that happen. Those at the coal face believe that if we didn't have MIQ, the impact on our most vulnerable would have been much worse. Well, we know that Māori and Pacific communities, they don't have the same uh, health outcomes as other parts of New Zealand society. So what I've seen of some of the modelling and estimates is that giving New Zealand the opportunity to get to a high level of vaccination saved thousands of lives. Do you think we'd have a need to use MIQ again? I think there will always probably be a need for a quarantine capability. And what the past two and a bit years has taught us is that the onset can come quite quickly. And so you always will need to have a readiness plan and an understanding of your trigger points. At what point do we start looking at what's happening overseas and, and just start making some, some moves there? Mm. It's a roller coaster ride Rema will never forget, and one she's been determined to see right through to the very end. You don't often get to see through or follow through something that you've started. So I think that's one of the things I'm going to be really proud of. You sometimes actually have to sit back and think, I was a part of that. I was a part of it from day one, and I'm going to be here to turn the lights out as well, which is pretty cool. Mate kainga tahi, ora kainga rua. Ka tahi te wahine ihu onioni. Nā Rawani Pereira, tērā pūrungo. After the break, I speak to the Associate Minister of Health, Dr Aisha Varel. Hoki mai anō. It's nearly one year since new legislation restricting the sale of flavoured vapes came into force. Its aim was to reduce the accessibility of fruity and confectionery flavoured vapes that are highly appealing to rangatahi, only making them available from specialty vape stores rather than the local dairy, service station or supermarket. The regulations were announced by the Associate Minister of Health, Dr Aisha Varel, as part of a rollout of smoke-free legislation aimed to protect rangatahi from being influenced to start smoking. But 12 months on, hundreds of specialty vape stalls are being built in existing dairies, some within metres of primary and high schools. Hei matapaki i tēnei take nui. Ko hono mai te minita tūrua mō ngā take haura, a tākuta Aisha Virel, who joins us now from Te Whanganui Ātara. Tēnā koe e te minita. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so how many, uh, you know, vaping licences have gone out since the legislation passed last year? Yeah, the, um, look, I, I don't have that figure to hand, but what I can tell you is that we've 
made a lot of progress in building a regulatory regime around, around vaping. Uh, and one of the key things that you didn't mention in your intro is it's also that vape products are only for R18. So they're not meant to be being sold to, to rangatahi at all. And I think um, what we've seen come through in the statistics, though, is that the number of young people who are vaping has increased uh, concurrent with those measures coming in. Uh, so it's um, it's not totally, we haven't seen the impact of our full regulations yet, but I'm particularly concerned that rangatahi appear to be vaping at a, at a higher rate uh, than we'd want, because we think vapes should be a tool to help support uh, mostly adults quit smoking. Uh, they shouldn't be something that people take up initially uh, um, for the, uh, without being smokers first. The Ministry of Health um, tells us 697 licences have been issued uh, since the legislation last year. Aren't you just replacing one bad habit with another bad habit targeted at younger people? You mean with respect to tobacco? Yeah, like, you know, th those, those numbers are going down, but what, we, what you're doing, 697 uh, specialty licences for vape shops in just one year. Are you concerned with that? Yes, I am. And let me um, le just, let's just go back to that comparison between tobacco and vaping. I just want to be really clear that tobacco is the most deadly product that we legally sell in New Zealand. It kills half the people that we use that use it. And the bill I've just introduced to the House, the modelling predicts that we'll get rid of the um, a quarter or a third of the difference in life expectancy between Māori and non-Māori. And so being focused on tobacco is really important because tobacco kills people. Vapes, however, vapes are far less harmful than tobacco, but they're still of concern. We don't want young people vaping. And so I think we do need to look at uh, what our regulations can do to support a, a reduction in vaping for young people. So firstly, we've made all of those changes over the last 18 months to make sure vapes are um, uh, specialist um, uh, those, those flavoured vapes are only in specialist stores, that um, there's no vaping in schools, indoor workplaces uh, or um, childcare centres. Okay. Uh, but we, we need to look at what else we can do. OK, in let's just come, back to that. just come back to that, because, I mean, everyone agrees, you know, um, that the smoke-free... Uh, it was actually the Māori Party that brought in a private members' bill, I think it was back in 2006, and so each successive government has kept to it. And I think in 2025, you might, I think it might be something like 5% of New Zealanders might still be smoking, which is fantastic. But when you look at, what, at the, some of the surveys that are coming out of vaping, uh, what, what can you tell us about the numbers? So if 1.4% of young people are smoking tobacco today, how many are vaping? Uh, more than that, and some estimates around 20 percent, 20 percent, and some surveys. And for Maori, for Maori women, young Maori women, 40 percent in some yeah. schools. And I agree that is something that we will work on. So I have uh, additional work planned on that. Well, no, no. Which... Well, let's just go back to the 697 licences that you've handed out. How is that helping? So, the, what the um, those licences? are specialist vape stores, which are more restrictive. Are they, though? Are they? Yeah. Look, Mihi, I think um, it is... It is uh, yes, they are, and there are additional requirements on them. OK. But I think, I think the point is 
that I, I agree that the vaping increase, particularly across the last year, is not right. So what we are doing through the smoke-free bill, which is, as I mentioned, predominantly around tobacco control, is we will have in that um, uh, measures that will help us enforce vape regulations, uh, regulations against vaping. So, for example, it means that every vape retailer will have to be registered with the Ministry of Health, not just the specialist ones. Okay. Uh, in addition, um, we have other options within the bill, which I'll receive uh, within our existing legislation to tighten up I, on I that. I want to talk to you about the specialists, because I understand all that. I want to talk to you about those 697 um, yeah. specialist licences, because... You know, I drive around central Auckland and I can see that dairies are simply converting their dairies into specialist vape shops literally 100 metres away from a predominantly brown uh, high school where, where those rates are really high. What are you doing to monitor that? So what I, have, what I am doing to fix it is I'm going to ask for additional advice on whether those, those issues, including the issues of proximity to schools, are ones we need to look at. Uh, there are also other issues about whether the um, type of device uh, that is being sold um, targets young people if it's single use or something like that. So there is, um, I, I, I agree, we are not in the position we want to be in with youth vaping. In my view, vaping should be a, um, a tool for promoting people to quit smoking. It shouldn't be, um, but, we're so, seeing but, far too many people start down the path mm -hmm. of uh, vaping as their first, uh, it, um, vaping up front as opposed to using you, it You too. say that you're yeah. really concerned about it. You, you've your ministry's given out 697 licences and done how many stings, how many monitoring? How much of that licence uh, fees, it's 1.4 million that the government's taken in revenue, how much of that has been targeted or spent on regulating um, or stings or monitoring? Well, we've done a number of things, and I can quite clearly demonstrate we've had a record of progressive movement on this on this issue. So we started out with the regulations to um, uh, under the bill that was passed in the last term of government to ban vaping in particular places, to make them R18, and to limit um, limit flavours to specialist vape shops. We now have more message, uh, measures underway, and it does relate to your question about enforcement. Through the smoke-free bill, there will be a um, uh, a provision in in there to make sure that all vape um, uh, sales are registered, which helps us with our enforcement because we're able to do stings if we know where those places uh, where those places are. Overall, if I, if I recall, there's been about 300 or 400 um, uh, uh, control operations. Um, which you call stings in the tobacco control space uh, over the last um, over the last two years, and then the um, the changes that we we make through through the law will enable us to uh, be more effective in our prosecutions against um, vape re retailers. Okay. So going forward, uh, so the rate of uh, specialist vape stores licences has been about two a day for the last year. Going forward, would you look at capping? A sinking lid or something like that because I guess you know parents are really concerned teachers and principals have already told you that, that that's just too accessible look I, I agree that we are not we do not have the right um, balance in our regulation at the moment it is too accessible and what I will um, what I am doing in addition to the changes we're making through the smoke free book bill will be to seek advice on that but there is a balance to strike 
uh, to strike here because we do want vapes to be available to support people to quit smoking. And we made the biggest progress we ever made in um, in supporting people to quit tobacco, which is the most deadly legally available substance uh, in the last couple of years. And that largely is down to, well, I'm told it's down to the availability of vapes to help adults to quit. So I agree, we totally need to strike a better balance than we have now. Let's go to COVID now, um, looking like uh, in recent days we've been told that it's uh, turning down, the numbers are turning down, um, yet when you consider a year ago we were, uh, the government was ramping up for a vaxathon to bring up the COVID um, vaccination levels, when you look at the booster are you concerned with some of those numbers? In Māori communities 50 to 60% only um, so far with a, with a booster? That's right, and that's why we're making sure that our outbound call system, uh, which I, I visited um, uh, iwi health providers who are, um, are making many of those outbound calls to, to target um, Māori and Pacifica uh, um, uh, who are who are eligible for that for that fourth booster and as you know we have a lower age criteria of eligibility for Māori and Pacifica recognizing the um, increased impact COVID have, has on on them and their communities. Do you have a goal would you like to see you know do you have an expectation Māori vax, uh, boost, booster rates up to around to 80 again? Well, I think the really challenging thing with the booster is that you can't have the booster within three months of being of being um, having had COVID. So that creates a, a challenge because if we um, set a population target, there is um, there there is that difficult thing that some people have just had COVID, so they can't get it immediately. However, we um, we accept that people we don't want an inequitable vaccination uh, rate, and we want it to be we want it to be equal and to be high. Next, we meet the mama creating a unique line of rongoa Māori soaps. Nō reira, kia piri tonu mai. What started as a quest to soothe her daughter's eczema has turned into a booming small business for a South Auckland mum. Roimata Tanifa Pao has now been making soaps in rongoa using traditional practices and native ingredients for the last 16 years. Roimata hopes to expand her business and show how Mātauranga Māori can transform the health and beauty industry in both a sustainable and empowering way. Kea John Boynton, te roangake o ngā kōrero. Roy Mata Tanifa Pao feels the presence of her tupuna every time she steps into the Nahere. As soon as I go near a tree or in a Nahere where I can just feel and sense and hear the insects and the manu flying, I know I'm home. Roy Mata is a passionate kaitiaki for the taiao. You'll often find her fighting to preserve the small pockets of native bush still left in urban areas of Tamaki Makoto. This is the older brother, older sister, Tuakana, to the karamu or the Caprosma robusta. 
and sharing the mātauranga of the nahere that's been handed down to her. This was one of the one of the strongest rongoa used by our tupuna. So when we take the bark, the bark is yellow. Roy Mata would come to rely on this mātauranga after her eldest daughter was born with severe eczema 17 years ago. When she was born, we figured out that there was something severely wrong with her skin. And so we went to the doctors and they, the doctors gave us all of these medicines and potions and stuff like this. We needed something that was a bit more gentle and it could seep into her skin. So I'll go down as deep as the raka will let me, because the raka will tell me when to stop. Struggling to find a treatment which would work, her nan Tao Biddle offered her some guidance. And she said, what are you doing? You need to go to the bush and you already know what to do. You already know what rako to use and all of that because Nan brought me up and, and around inside the bush, how to walk with them, how to listen to them. And she listened and started to experiment with using rako and rungua. One of my friends, she's like, why don't you try making soap? And it was just an offhanded comment. I was like, oh, yeah, I can give that a go. Um, so I had a look on, online. And then I saw that the process takes six weeks, and I was like, oh, hecka, that's too long, I'm not going to do that. So with my bit of science bread, I figured out how to make it a bit faster. We saw an immediate change in her skin, and mostly in her structure, mostly in the moisturising of, of her skin. She was able to retain a lot of the natural moisture, the natural oils. And it was a recipe she perfected from her garage, using rako like kawakawa, tanekaha and kumaraho. So where normal people would take six weeks um, to cure theirs, we can make it within an hour and then about 12 hours later we can cut them up and use them. And that worked perfect for me because I'm the most impatient person in the whole wide world. Three years ago with support from her friends and whanau, she decided to sell her soap to the public. And her small business, Soaps by Roy, was born. Oh my gosh, soaps has taken over our lives. So people think that this is my full-time job, it's not. <laughs> this is something that we do when we get home because we enjoy it. The mahi that we do, rongwa, it's not just a thing that we do, it's, it's a lifestyle. During the start of the COVID pandemic, orders skyrocketed with huge demand from marae and large businesses and talk turned to upscaling operations. I don't know what happened to the soap production in New Zealand, but it felt like we were taking on like the brunt of it um, from our two little garages. One of the things that we never ever pictured soaps getting to this point, getting to the point where we need to scale up. It was just something that we made out of need, not something that we ever considered being able to use as a platform to privilege Matauranga Māori and to put a narrative. Roy Mata's operation will soon move out of her garage to be made by a larger local manufacturer. With plans to rebrand and launch overseas, she wants to ensure the soap is made sustainably and traditional Matauranga is protected. We must not go to the to the ngahere to um, get our stuff from there, because we'll just wreck it. And it goes against what we're about. It's tough because you're holding so much, like, there's so much mātauranga and tūpuna at your back. 
and you don't want to dishonour them by saying something or doing something in a way that that just is not, not good in their eyes. Even though she's excited to see the business grow, Roimata isn't losing focus on what's driving her mahi. For the time being, soaps has been our way that we can help people reconnect with Papa Tuanaku. The possibility and the opportunity to privilege to a narrative, that's what keeps me going. Rawe era hopi. Na John Boynton tera purungu. Kwe hikina te hui e huama, no huru maira. Te puna whakatongarewa te hui i tautoko.